It's good to uh, be with you all this morning, and uh, before I begin, I'd just like to open up with a word of prayer. Father, as we are gathered here together to continue to worship and to look at your word, I pray that it would be like standing by a fire on a cold day. I pray that the ministry of your word would warm the hearts of your people this morning and stir us up, that the life of the ministry of your word would would give life to your people. I pray for your blessing upon Omaha Bible Church pray that you would be stirring up and blessing this congregation for the sake of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I do want to bring greetings from Kansas City, um, from my home church, a faith community church. We're a church north of the river. I've pastored a church there for quite some time now. Um, Yesterday I was looking, watching the news, and they were showing a map of, of the flu epidemic, and it was red, just bright red all across the South and Midwest, Kansas, Missouri, and I know my family has been ravaged by it, our church has been ravaged by it, and it was interesting because on that particular map, Nebraska was like all white, and I thought, wow, I'm going to come, going to bring the influenza virus with me and welcome Omaha Bible Church to the red zone, but... um, talking to uh, Pastor Mike, it sounds like you guys are in the red zone as well, and there's a lot of sickness going around. That was my fear that I was going to, uh, my kids were getting it. I thought, I'm going to call Mike Saturday or Sunday morning and say, I can't do it, I'm sick. But Lord has been good, and I'm I'm feeling great. It's always a joy to be with uh, here at Omaha Bible Church. Last time, I think, was a couple of years ago. And uh, we have a special kinship with this church. I have a great admiration and respect for your for your pastor. You know, he's pastored Omaha Bible Church for, I guess, I think at least 14 or 15 years. And that's a remarkable thing. The average tenure, as I understand it, there's some debate about this, but the average tenure of a pastor is about three years. Um, that's about how long they last in a church before they before they move on. So it's not an easy thing to pastor the same church for 14 or 15 years. It requires a lot of energy. It requires a lot of responsibility. It requires a commitment to the Word of God. And, um, and I, I see that in, in, your, uh, in your pastor. What I'm doing this morning as a guest pastor coming in one time, this is easy. I mean, I've got hundreds of sermons I could pick from, come in, and I try to, I'm, I'm definitely going to try to pick my best one and, and lay it out for you. I have good friends, great guys who go around the, the, the country and they preach at conferences and they have about six or seven sermons and they will preach them literally dozens of times a year, which is not a bad thing. It's good stuff, but you can't do that if you're a local pastor, can you? You can't preach the same sermons over and over again. And, and if you do, you will probably last about three years because people aren't going to keep coming around. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of work to week after week present the Word of God. And there, it's incredibly important. I was just talking to Robbie before the service. It is incredibly important what kind of church you go to. You have a vested interest in the spiritual well-being of your pastors and your, your, the church's leaders. I, I am convinced there is a, a rule. Every rule has exceptions, but I, I think generally this rule holds true. That in time, 
in the process of some, maybe take months, years, but in, in time, a congregation takes on the identity of its leaders. The, the parishioners begin to look and to think and to act like our pastors. And you can see this, you see this played out all the time. You have legalistic pastors, you, you will have legalistic people. Licentious pastors, licentious people. Evangelistic pastors, pastors who are excited about evangelism, you'll have evangelistic people. Spiritually dull, dead pastors, you're eventually going to have spiritually dull, dead people. And I didn't, I didn't make this rule up, and it's not just by experience. In fact, I think this rule is found in Scripture. I think we can bring this out. I'm just going to refer to this quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. This is a verse that I, I have underlined, boxed, squared, encircled in places. Paul tells Timothy the pastor, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Because if you, you keep attentive to yourself, to your life, to your spiritual life, and keep close attention to the, to the teaching, to doctrine, if you persist in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. If there is spiritual life in, in the leadership behind the, the men in the pulpit, there is spiritual integrity. If there is life there, it will translate into life among those who hear them. But what's the corollary? If there isn't life behind, if there isn't holiness and, and passion in, in the heart of the men who are leading the church, What's the, what's the church eventually going to look like? So you have a vested interest in the spiritual well-being of your church. And this is something that, that elders of the church, the church itself needs to be extremely concerned about. I'm going to share with you some things um, that the Lord taught me as a pastor, really during a very dry time spiritually for me. Um, I'm going to try to compress... A series of sermons, because I, through these things, I, I were, there was a series of sermons that came out of them that I delivered to my church. And so I'm basically getting to press, you know, 145 minutes into about 45 minutes this morning. But I think it's important to do it. I actually wish I could have done it in my church because I wanted to keep this all together. I, I want to share with you some things that the Lord taught me as a pastor, really during a very spiritually dry time. And yes, pastors do have those things. That's why they need to get away. That's why they need time to, to stop and reflect on them. And I've, I've entitled the message, Life's Trivium. Trivium is a Latin word. It's a, it's a fascinating word. It literally referred to three roads that would converge in one place. It later became just to refer to three integral parts of a whole, but in medieval times, if you have a place where three roads come together, you have a very important place. And so when I talk about life's trivium, I am talking about really what life is all about, the, where, where life meets at three significant main highways. 
And life's trivium is theology, worship, and faith. And these are the the things that the Lord really began to teach me, things that I knew, things that the Lord began to deeply remind me of during this time in my life when I was fairly spiritually dry. And it's not a good thing when a pastor is spiritually dry. I'm assuming all of us in this room at some point have been through those periods of spiritual dullness where our hearts, you know, you're singing the songs and, and your lips are moving and and words are coming out, but you're not really singing from the heart. This uh, this message, these truths that I'm speaking this, this morning are truths that um, I had to learn the hard way, I think. I had to learn through experience, not just reading in a book. I found myself in a in, in a wilderness of such, and those kind of experiences never happen overnight. They usually are a process of time. You you get busy with life. You you are going from here to there, and you're just, in the words of Matthew West, you know, going through the motions, just kind of going through the motions, and that's exactly actually what I found myself doing. C.H. Spurgeon called it ministerialism. You're just doing your job. It really came to a head for me reading Psalm 95. It was in Psalm 95 that I really began to see where I was at spiritually. And it starts with verse 1 and 2. I'm just, it really came to a head for me. And let's just reread those two verses. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now, that's fairly easy to read. It rolls right off my lips. You can listen to that. Yeah, that's great. Let's sing to the Lord. Let's, let's make a joyful noise. That's nothing, nothing surprising there. But in many ways, as I was reading it that, that morning, it was like a foreign language to me. It was like lost in translation. There was no reverberation. There was no echo in my heart. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's enter into His courts with thanksgiving. Let's make a joyful noise. And I'm reading this, and there is no reverberation at all within my heart. Now, to make matters worse, worse is when you, when you look at the English translation, it's actually tamed down than, than the Hebrew really is. You'll notice it says, let us sing. Literally, the Hebrew is... A ringing cry. The second command is let us make a joyful noise. This joyful noise is, is like a loud shout. The, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's the Southern Baptist Bible, translates, oh come, instead of let us sing, it says, oh come, make a joyous shout. It's a little closer to the Hebrew. And for a joyful noise, it is a triumphant shout. I mean, this psalm, Psalm 95, is a call for this effusive, carbonated, bubbling, exuberant, enthusiastic, uninhibited praise. Oh, come, let us shout for joy. Let's give our maker thanks. Let's come into his presence with a a a a shout of triumph. These are words that you would see 
in an atmosphere like the NFL football stadium, unless you're a Chiefs fan. You would not see these things ever. Um, someone said they recently declared Arrowhead Stadium a tornado shelter because they were guaranteed no touchdowns ever there. But seriously, these are the words that you would find in a stadium. This is the kind of atmosphere that Psalms 95 is talking about. A touchdown and everybody shouts, yes! This is the kind of atmosphere that you would associate with watching American Idol or whatever those shows are or a Justin Bieber concert, whatever. The kind of atmosphere that is electrified where people are, are shouting and having fun. This is awesome. This is the kind of atmosphere that the psalmist is calling for. Let's make a joyous shout to our God. These are not words that I would gen- generally associate with church, and they certainly weren't words that described how my heart felt. There was this vacant emptiness. I'm reading these words, come on, let us sing to the Lord. And there was just there was no reverberation. In my life, there are a lot of ups and downs, and unless you take artificial stimulants, there are more downs than there are ups. And if you're taking artificial stimulants, they will eventually kill you, which is the ultimate down. So you have ups, you have downs, but in between these ups and downs, life really has long intervals of monotony. It's like being on a treadmill. You you just have to live life, and you go through the motions. And, and that's where I found myself that morning. I was on a treadmill. It felt like a very fast treadmill, so fast that it was hard to, to keep going. But it was going so fast that if I didn't keep going, it was going to be a very ugly fall. So fast, and yet I wasn't really going anywhere at all. I wasn't doing anything at all. So I find myself in this state reading Psalm 95 with these effusive enthusiastic calls for praise and it just was ringing hollow in my soul and I, and I don't think I'm psychotic I don't think I'm the only one who's experienced these kind of things I think of moms who's, who spend their days changing diapers and wiping snotty noses and being a taxi cab service and trying to keep order of the house and then come and sit down and read Psalm 95 and sing hallelujah or, or to the person who's working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, day in, day out, just keeps going, trying to go to service. At our church, Wednesday nights, we have a Wednesday night service. The church comes out, and, and I, I see the faces. I look out, the zombies, you know, just the exhaustion. They just work, work, and then to say, okay, let's all shout triumphantly now. It's like, just, there's this discrepancy here. And I certainly felt it sitting there on that morning. When you're on the treadmill, when you're exhausted, when, when you're numb inside, these calls for carbonated praise, as I would call them, well, they, they just don't seem to resonate with us. What's really even worse is that when you look at the calls to praise in Psalm 95, they're rather tame compared to other places in Scripture. If you want to see just a few of them, follow along. Psalm 96 in verse 11 and 12, there's 
this expansive, let's let the heavens be glad. Let's let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. In fact, everything that fills the sea. Let's have the fish enjoy praising who God is. Then all the trees of the forest sing for joy. I mean, the field exalting and everything in it. So, I mean, here's this exuberant call for everything on the planet to praise God on the earth and the sea. Chapter uh, 98, verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song. Sing His praises. Do it with trumpets, verse 6. Again, verse 7, let the sea roar. And everything that fills it, every every fish and whale and shark, the world. Verse 8, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy. I mean, just come, come on, let's all praise the Lord. You want to get really crazy, you turn to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. And then he just starts calling on Verse 2, angels praise Him. Come on, angels, you praise Him. Verse 3, sun, moon, stars. I mean, here's this calling out the trio of these heavenly hosts. Come on, praise God. Verse 7, praise Him from the earth. You great sea creatures. Whales, praise Him. Verse 9, mountains and hills and fruit trees and cedar. Beasts, bears, cows, lizards, crows, praise Him. I mean, here this this Psalms just call for this magnificent outpouring of praise and exuberance before God. And I look at my life. Here I was sitting there that morning, reflecting on this treadmill, and I had no voice in this chorus. I had no heart in it whatsoever, and it bothered me. There was a discrepancy in my life, and I think every child of God should have a yearning to want to praise God, to, to want their life to, to be this kind of life, to sing and, and to worship and to come into God's courts with praise and worship. We want that. And I hope at times we do see the discrepancy when we when we look at the Psalms and we see these outlandish calls of praise, and then we look at our heart and we, we see this discrepancy, and it should bother us. But what do we do with these things? Do we just live with the dichotomy? Do we just live with the discrepancy? Or we could do what, what we do. My, one of my sons, my youngest son, Levi, he, he's really taken to the game of life. He loves the game life, and so we, we'll play life. You know, and if you've ever played the game, you, you get to go the college route, take the college loans and draw and maybe become a doctor and get a 100000 a year, or you can go take your chances the other way. But you're playing this game, and there are 50,000 bills and $100,000 bills flowing around, and kids are being born, and all these things happening, winning the lottery. And it's kind of fun and kind of exciting, but when I get a $100,000 bill from the life game, I'm not... Oh, you know, yeah, I mean, I may do it a little bit, but I'm, I'm not really because it's just make-believe. It's a different world. It's not really life. 
And I wonder if there aren't times as Christians as where we read the Psalms, we see these extravagant calls of praise, and we really live in two different worlds. We've got the church world or the Bible world, and then we've got our world. Boy, that, those are, that's kind of in the church world you do those things, but this is my world. And I hope that as Christians, as believers, we say, we, we don't want that. Oh, that's the Bible world. That's Sunday. The real world's like this. I wasn't satisfied with that, and I hope that you aren't as well. So the first question that, you know, really we have to answer ourselves as we look at these places in the Psalms that call us to praise God, why are these calls so elaborate, so enthusiastic? Why are we to praise God in this? And, and, and I think most of us in this room know the answer why there are these calls of praise, why they are so extravagant. The answer is found in Psalm 95, as he calls us to praise and to enter with this joyous shout, with triumphant shouts into his presence, verse 3 tells us why. For Yahweh is a great God. He is a great king above all gods. The answer is that there is a being who exists that deserves such praise. I want you to, to, to just dwell on this with me for a moment. The intensity of these calls to praise, calling on the angels and the sun and the moon and the stars and whales and lizards and field mice and, and seas to roar, the intensity of these calls to worship are parallel, equal to the object of the one to be worshipped. Meaning, these calls aren't exaggerated. It's not more emotion than what is to be deserved. That these extravagant calls of worship parallel the majesty and the glory of the object to be worshipped. I don't know if you've, I, my family likes to watch America's Funniest Videos. I don't know if you've seen the one where they give the people the fake lottery ticket. Have you seen that? You know, they, they get the ticket and they're filming them and they rev it off. Oh, I've won, I've won $50,000. I've won fifty, And they're running around the house. I've won $50,000. And they're all excited and there's effusive praise, shouts of joy. And then they start reading it, mama, reading it. And it says, you know, collect from your mama. Huh? What? Oh, it was a big joke. You mean I didn't really win it? No, he didn't really win it. You see, these calls of praise are not greater than the object to be worshipped. There is an equal. This extravagant call of praise is the result of a being being so majestic that he deserves such praise. Psalm 148, the, the crazy psalm that, that calls whales and, and lizards and crows to praise, 
sums it all up. It says in Psalm 148, verse 13, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. So, what drives this praise? It's the first road in life's trivium. It's theology. So it's a word about God. This, this kind of praise comes from understanding who God is. Looking at God and seeing Him. Theology, theos, logos, two Greek words. Word about God, what you think about God. Every person in this room is a theologian. Every one of you has a word about God. Every one of you, man, woman, child, old, young, black, white, it doesn't matter. Every one of you are a theologian. Every one of you have a word about God. If you love playing video games more than reading God's word or coming to church, that's a a word about God. An atheist is a theologian. They have a word about God. An agnostic is a theologian. Every one of us in this room is a theologian. All of life is about theology. The Bible says when you come to know God, you you will praise Him. Where, Where do we learn all these things about God that would cause us to praise Him in such extravagant ways? Again, I think most of us would know the answer. Well, first of all, you, if you want to come to know who God is and what God is like, you don't look at your feelings. You don't look inside. That's, that's not where God is at. You don't discern who God is by the way you feel. And most of us probably have the head knowledge of that, and yet so often in practice we think of God in, on the basis of our feelings. You don't learn about God on the basis of circumstances, who He is by what happens to us. The book of Job tells us that. You certainly don't turn on TV and find out who God is by television. You don't want to find your theology about television. Where do you learn about these wonderful things about God? Well, there are two places the Bible tells us that we learn about God. The first place is in creation. When you walk outside... When you behold the world and all that he has created, you learn things about God. When you've ever sat outside and observed a a beautiful sunset, if, if you've ever walked out under the starry sky and just been awed at the vastness of it and looked at it, if you've ever looked at a rose and just been amazed and delighted at the intricacies of it, if you've ever been scared to death by a thunderstorm and a clap of thunder, if you've ever seen a tornado or lived through a hurricane, you have learned something about God. You have seen something about Him. You've seen that He is beautiful. He is artistic. He is big. He's powerful. He's scary. You've learned something about God. So we learn things about God from creation, just going outside. And sometimes we need to do that. You're not praising God sometimes because your, your world has become so small. It it's consists of a little cubicle that you live in and your face in front of this blue screen all the time. Get out and look at God and the world. But creation doesn't tell us everything about God. 
And there are a lot of things we don't know about God. My son, he's 17 years old. He's a lifeguard at the YMCA. And uh, he came home the other day. And uh, he's, he's very evangelistic on the job. He, he loves to share the Lord with, with his fellow lifeguards. And uh, there's a, a lady who worked at the Y. She had just had a baby. And five days later, that baby died. And he, he came home. He said, Dad, what do I tell her? What do I say? What do you say of that? I don't, I don't know why God allows somebody to go through the whole process of pregnancy and the pain of childbirth and then five days later lose a baby. I, I don't know why children are born with defects. and I don't know why there's poverty. and I don't know why bad things happen. There are so many things about God that I don't know. But if there's one place we want to look to, to find the definitive word about God. Where is it? We, you know it, right? It's, it's the Bible. It is the one place where God has given us the definitive statement of who He is. Even though there are things we do not know about Him, we may not understand what He does, He has given us a self-revelation. Yahweh has spoken. This is what I am like, and it is found in the pages of this book right here. This is what God is like. And it is a glorious God. He is a glorious God. He is, according to Psalm 95... Yahweh is a great God, a great King above all gods. We open up the pages of this book and we find that God is holy, holy, holy. You read things like He is slow to anger. He is merciful. He is ready to forgive. He is sovereign over every things sitting in heavens and ruling over it. He cannot lie. He is eternal. I mean, the list could go on and on. When you look at what the Bible tells us about who God is, we find a God who is absolutely, indescribably wonderful. I mean, this is a God that it's difficult for us to conceive. He is eternal. He is holy without any shadow of darkness within Him. He is light. He is yet merciful, slow to anger, ready to forgive. One of my favorite hymns is the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. I love this. We were at a, uh, at a uh, conference, at John MacArthur's conference, at, uh, what are they called? Shepherd's Conference. And the, you, know, you have 5,000 men or so out here singing this hymn, and it was, it was absolute, absolutely beautiful. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for you in his precious word. Here's the foundation, you saints of the Lord. You have a firm foundation. It's all laid for you right here. And this one line is my favorite line in almost any hymn. The next line says, What more could he say than to you he has said? That's, that's it. I mean, what, what more could God tell you about himself that could bless you more than what he's already said. Is there anything more you, you would need to add to God to go, wow, what more could he say than to you he has said? 
When you come to know who God is, which is theology, it leads to worship. Verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. There's the second road in our trivia. Life is about knowing who God is. And when you come to know who God is, you will worship him. The theology leads to worship. If we truly beheld God, if we saw him, if we understood him, we would worship him. It would be as instinctive to worship him as it would be as instinctive to shout for joy if Jamal Charles ran 98 yards for a touchdown. If I would watch that, I wouldn't need my wife to say, hey, 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 cheer. No, no. I would see it and go, yes! To understand who God is instinctively would result in worship. He's that kind of being. If you knew Him, you would worship Him. In J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God, he, he really summed up the excellence of the knowledge of God. Listen to what he said. What are we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. What is eternal life that Jesus Christ gives? The knowledge of God. Then he said this. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else. His answer, the knowledge of God. That's the best thing in life. There's more joy in knowing God than anything else in life. This is to a man who's sitting in his chair reading, Oh, come, let us make a joyful shout to the Lord. And there is no reverberation. There is no echo. The truth is, and, and I knew this truth, that, that the more a person really knows God, the more they're going to worship Him. The more a person beholds who God is, they will praise Him. I was reminded of a verse. We'd gone through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8 speaks of the four living creatures who are directly around the throne of God. They are the closest living creatures to God, to the very presence of God. And it says they are around Him day and night. And it says they never cease to say, Holy, 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 
is the Lord God Almighty. And they soon say that. They behold Him again and they say again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they say it again and again and again. And and as I was just contemplating, beholding that kind of majesty where you are constantly resulting in this praise, in our mortal bodies, we couldn't handle that, could we? We would we would die. We could not handle that unmediated glory. But there they are in the presence of God, beholding God and worshiping Him twenty four seventy, twenty four seven. Well, here's the irony of all that I've said. So here I am, Pastor. I see these truths. I see this command. I need to be praising the Lord. Where does these praises come from? It comes from theology. It comes from who God is. When you know who God is, you will worship Him. But there I was sitting in my chair, just reading through this passage of Scripture. Why is it that we can know all these things, know all these things about God And still have such dull hearts. I I gave you a a list of several things that God is. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is merciful, slow to anger. He is ready to forgive. I doubt there are very many people in this room who heard one of those attributes and went, really? You you mean God is, is, is really sovereign over everything? You, you mean God is really merciful? You mean God is ready to forgive? He's not in heaven withholding His forgiveness. He's ready. There is, I'm assuming, most of us in this room, as I listed out all these things about God, would say, yeah, I know that. And yet we don't have a heart of praise and worship. And why is that? Why are we not stirred? And this is where Psalm 95 really hit me over the head with the two before. Because it gives the answer. The answer is in verse 7 and 8. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. The reason we can know so much about God and yet have hearts so dull inside is because of unbelief. Because of hard hearts. We can be confronted with the greatness and glory of God, but unlike the angels, unlike the living creatures in heaven, not worship Him, not praise Him. Our hearts are hard towards who He is. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. One of the Bibles that I read through, you know how it gives chapter headings at the top of each psalm. I thought it was fascinating. Under Psalm 95, it said, Worship and Warning. (laughs) Worship, but here's a warning. Don't harden your hearts. When you confront, are confronted with these great things about God, don't harden your heart. 
doing some study on Psalm 95, you, you might note that it's not, it's not subscribed to, to David. David didn't write this psalm. Most people believe Psalm 95 was written during the second temple period, which means it was written during the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, maybe one of those men were the authors. We don't know. Maybe it was those Levites. But it was written during the Second Temple period. Some scholars believe that Psalm 95 was written during the time when the, when the Second Temple's foundation was laid. When they had come back after 70 years, they came back, they laid the foundation of the temple. It says in Ezra chapter 3 verse 11 that the Levites, the sons of Asaph, were leading the people in praise. And it says in Ezra chapter 3 verse 11 that all the people shouted with a great shout because the foundation of the the temple had been laid. And a lot of people think that maybe that's when Psalm 95 was written. Oh, come, let us sing. I think it was written definitely during the second temple period, but I don't think it was written during, during the dedication of the temple. And the reason is, is because of this warning about hardening your hearts. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, there, there were these moments of great glory when the temple was being laid, but as the story unfolds, the people are met with opposition from their neighbors. They are harassed and persecuted, and eventually the work stops. There is sin in the camp and the people are discouraged and distressed and God sends to them prophets to encourage them, to speak to them, to get them to work again. And so in Ezra chapter 5, you have the Lord sending prophets. And I am convinced it's somewhere in that time, in this time of discouragement and depression, where God sends the prophets, where this psalm is written, where the people are called to get their eyes off their circumstances, to get their eyes off the discouragements of their life, and to behold again their God of who He is and what He has said to them. And the warning is, don't harden your hearts. You see, this call to praise wasn't based on their circumstances. It wasn't because they saw a touchdown. Oh, yes, it was based on who God is and what He had said to them. And because of that, they were to rejoice, to praise Him magnificently. So Psalm 95 is written to a people that were in a situation just like me. It wasn't because my circumstances were great, because everything was going wonderful, and I was just praising God. It was a call to me to get off the treadmill and to look up and to behold again God to see again who He is and what He has said to me and to believe it and to actually receive it. How many of you have ever opened up God's Word, read through perhaps a psalm, finished the chapter, walked up and just left unmoved? I mean, it happens all the time, I think. It is so easy just to open up the Bible, read it, and move on. And that is exactly what Psalm 95 warns us against. Do not listen to the voice of God, hear the voice of God, and it not affect you. You need to do not harden your heart. It is so easy for our hearts to become calloused. We are surrounded, if you're in church at Omaha, like Omaha Bible Church, you are surrounded with great truths about God. And it is so easy for your heart to become callous to those truths. You hear them and hear them, and oh, that's great. And this, this psalm speaks so relevantly to our situation. Do not harden your hearts. 
so easy to know the gospel, to know what Christ has done for you, to tell other people what Christ has done, and yet not really believe what Christ has done. You see, when the psalmist warns not to harden their hearts, Robbie mentioned Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Hardening your hearts is equivalent to unbelief. They, they knew who God was. They heard His promises, but they didn't believe it. They hardened their hearts. Those promises and that goodness ran off their hearts like rain off a duck's back. Don't harden your heart. I was reading through the Psalms and Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless His holy name. And he just says, don't forget all of His benefits. And it just starts listing out all the things that God has done for us, who forgives all your iniquities. And it's so amazing. You just start going through these things, and you can just read through that. Yeah, that's great. And you go on and not ever receive any benefit for it. You have to stop and think about this for a minute and, and begin to let what God has said in His Word sink into your heart. Do not forget all of His benefits. Who forgives All your iniquity? He forgives it all? Releases it all? I mean, He is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. I mean, there are so many things in that chapter alone that if you could just stop and think about them and and receive them, you'd have enough to live on for weeks. You know, we can just run through these lists and never benefit from them. We truly have extremely inadequate views of faith. We've reduced it to intellectual assent. I believe that. I believe that. And we don't really believe it at all. Because if we believed it at all, we would be transformed. We would be changed. We would would worship. We would have reason to praise Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus uses a number of metaphors for faith. One of the most intimate ones, one of the most personal ones that he used is in John chapter 6. He likens faith to eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's sad when... when Roman Catholicism takes that verse and reduces it to eating a little wafer and, oh, boom, it'll change into the body. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He is speaking, explaining to our minds the intricate, intimate nature of what saving faith is like. It is like eating in which you take his flesh and chew it and ingest it and break down the nutrients and receive it into your body. Where you take his atoning death for your sake and you ingest it and you receive benefit from it. That's faith. May we not harden our hearts. If you're on the treadmill of what life this morning, if you're exhausted, maybe you're numb. Psalm 95 is a call of praise. It is a call to get off the treadmill and to to look upon your God again. Hear 
what he has to say and believe. And you will praise him. It doesn't matter what circumstance you are in right now. There is an attribute and there is a promise of God that if you hear, if you receive, it will bless your socks off. That's a good Midwestern term. I couldn't get by with that on the West Coast. But you know what I mean. It doesn't matter what circumstance you're in right now. There is a truth about God and there is a promise that if you would believe it, it would bring joy and praise to your life right now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. You know how many times I've confessed to you my cold, dead, hard hearts. There isn't anything more you could say to me than you've already said. The warning to me and to you. Do not harden your heart. Don't let it become callous to the truth of who God is and what he has said. Receive them today and praise him. In Jesus' name.